All right, the book, well, Bible dictionaries. So make sure you got Bible dictionaries. So make sure you have them if you need one. They may need one. You're good. All right, Bible dictionaries. You may want to look up the entry for, for the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah. In the last hour, we did kind of a biographical sketch of Jeremiah. And I wanted to read from this, if I can find it, because it does answer a question that I kind of hinted at. All right, here we go. Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, the priest, uh, or Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, the priest, is the writer of the book, bearing his name. The book of Jeremiah is the longest prophetic book of the Bible, and more is revealed about the life of Jeremiah than any of the other prophets, which I thought was, that's why we did the biographical sketch. There, I, I should have started the first hour with that, but I wanted to just try to explain, I wanted to just show you all the biographical information about Jeremiah in the book of Jeremiah, which I think then creates an interesting biographical sketch. Why do we know more about him than all the others? Who knows? But we, all of that information is there. So I wanted us to try to group it together into basically 10 points was what we did in the first hour. Hopefully that was beneficial and hopefully helpful. So this hour we have one a goal, really. Now, there's no way we can accomplish this goal. All right, so we're going to do basically a book overview of the book of Jeremiah. And whenever you do book overviews, it's always, or at least for me, I always feel overwhelmed when we get ready to start a book overview because I always have to decide, well, what resource do I want to kind of build my book overview with, right? Because there are, you know, for every book of the Bible, there, I mean, you've got Bible handbooks, you've got dictionaries, you've got uh, surveys, you've got all of this information, and they always structure the books somewhat. And sometimes there's lots of similarity. But there's also, especially when you get to the Old Testament books like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, any of the minor prophets, you've got all of this background information, historical context. And it's like, how far, how much of that do you try to go into, right? Because you've got dates and names and kings and, and, and cities and, and countries, and you've got all of this information. And on one hand, I'm, not, I'm never going to say the information is not important because it is. But at the same time, sometimes you have to question how much is that information going to help people actually interpret the book, right? In other words, if you know, here's uh, this date, here's this date, here's this date, here's this king, here's this king, you can sound really smart, right? But will it actually help in the interpretation of the book? So I'm always left with what... Where do we start? Where do we go? So I think that what we're going to do today is we're going to utilize the Bible dictionary as kind of our, it's going to guide us, and then we may deviate whenever we, we want. And uh, we'll see if it gets us all the information that we want. So if you have the Bible dictionary, what page is the entry for those who are looking? For the book. We've already covered the person. I want to kind of read what they say about the person, but because there's probably more information. But for trying to stay on schedule, we're just going to go to that, and that's on page 644, 644, and we'll work through this, all right? Now, whenever we work through this, remember, I'll be reading and stopping when I stop. Please try not to continue reading, because then I can just, 
or I can just stop and just let you read, but then we can, we can kind of work through it, all right? And we'll try to go through this to the best of our ability. Now, I also have an outline on the book. There's no way I can give you the outline I have on the book in this hour because it would take the entire hour to get through the outline. Because I have a very, 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 very detailed outline of the book. And one of the reasons I'm going with a more detailed outline of the book is Jeremiah is difficult because we don't, we don't think it's in chronological order, which creates a mess, right? So in other words, some say it's structured more in a topical way or a thematic way than necessarily a chronological way. Well, you know all the problems that can create, right? Because if it's in chronological order, how can you outline it? Yeah, you can just kind of put things in the chronological order, right? Hey, this comes this and this, and you can break it down. If it's not, then you have to say, then you either go with, do I group everything together from a topical or thematic standpoint? And then how will that help me understand the structure of the book? Like, there's lots of questions here. So we're just going to go through this, and we will see where we come up, all right? So you ready? Page 644. At least this gets us a starting point. And the reason I'm using the Bible dictionary, because all of you have a copy of it, right? So it just makes it simple, all right? Now, of course, I could do what most pastors do, go to the resources, take the resources, put them in your own notes, and then act like that you came up with it, when in reality, it's, it's found in the book in your study. So you know I never do that, right? Whatever book I use, where does it show up? <laughs> it always shows up here, right? Because why, why go through it and take this part and take this part and then preach it like I came up with it, when in reality, you just took it from... A book, so I I don't like doing that, and this at least gets us a we're all on the same page here. So everybody ready? All right, the book of Jeremiah, page six hundred and forty-four. For those listening online, we're using Nelson's new illustrated Bible dictionary, and we may deviate at any point. Here we go, Jeremiah, book of a major prophetic book of the Old Testament. Stop right here. Now, we remember the prophetic books in the Bible are broken into two categories. What are the two categories? Major and minor. Why are they referred to as major and minor? Simply the length of the books, not because of the importance of the content, right? So don't see a smaller book as being insignificant. I know everyone knows that, but it's just a a good reminder to constantly have that the, the major prophets are just larger books, okay? Now, this is, this is very, very important, all right? This next line is very important. A major prophetic book. Now, first, because it's prophetic, what, what's significant about that? Yeah, this, the, the genre of literature. It's prophetic writing, right? So, uh, and whenever it comes with prophecy, remember, what are some of the hard, hard rules that we use when reading a prophetic book? Whenever we read a prophecy, we try to figure out at any point in history has that prophecy been fulfilled. We look for historical fulfillment. Now, historical for us. Now, for them, it was future. For us, we look for a historical fulfillment before we look for a future. Right? And we are so grateful for the preterist forcing people to do that because there's a tendency that whenever we see a prophecy, we immediately do what? Throw it to the future. And sometimes it was future for them, but it's, it's now past for us. It's already been fulfilled. It was either fulfilled 
with the Babylonian captivity. It was either fulfilled coming out of the Babylonian captivity. It was either fulfilled for the destruction of the temple at that time or the rebuilding of the temple at that time. Or it was fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, right? Or it was fulfilled in 70 AD. Like, there's all these fulfillments. And we, the Christians are so bad at that. They'll just read a scripture and like, that's the future. Well, we've talked about it with Matthew 24. That's about 70 AD, first and foremost, right? So we've got to learn that rule. So if it's prophetic, we look for a, a historical fulfillment first. Second, we know that it's going to use language that requires a little bit more work, right? Because some prophecies are given what way? In very allegorical or, or almost uh, poetic language, which can make it very hard then, right? Sometimes it can be given very straightforward and specific language. So we got fi- to figure that out. But okay, so just make sure we know that. Now here's the next part. It's a prophetic book of the Old Testament, a major prophetic book. So we looked at the word major. We looked at the word prophetic. Say at this rate, it's going to take us six months just to get through the dictionary, okay? Book of the Old Testament. Next word. Directed to the southern king of Judah before that nation fell to the Babylonians. I cannot stress this enough. Why is that important in the book of Jeremiah? I don't know why I'm going to put my iPad down. I may need it, but okay. Move all my other books over here. I cannot, I, I cannot. Okay, well, there's two kingdoms, right? Southern and Northern. But why is it important to note that this book is directed to the southern kingdom? Okay. Well, first of all, it's important to realize that we have to interpret this in light of who it was originally to. Remember, we always have to determine whenever we're looking at a book, what was the message to the people who originally received it, right? Because what we have a tendency to do is jump in there and put who there. We put ourselves there, right? We just kick the door in and say, get out of the way, Judah. This is about me, right? And we know people do this in the book of Jeremiah all the time, right? I know the plans I have for you, right? Is that what Jeremiah 29? I mean, I just went to some graduations. I'm assuming it was quoted, right? Is it Jeremiah 29? Was it? Oh, okay. I was like, give me a break. I know I've heard it once at one of your kids' graduations. Okay, so I, I have, and I'll never forget it. Okay, was it, is it, look at Jeremiah 29. Is it verse 11? I'm, I'm just joking. It is, right? Yeah, everybody look at Jeremiah 20 and 11 just really quick. All right. Yeah, because I, I yeah. Yeah, it was, I think it was David's. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 because I was like, what is happening right now? Why is this being quoted in Abilene, Texas, right? All right. Um, yeah, Jeremiah 29. In fact, looked at verse 10. See, it's just amazing how nobody can understand even the basic context. Jeremiah 29, 10. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at not, not high school, not college, at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you an expected end. 
that you shall call upon me and you shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you. That is for those coming out of Babylonian captivity. If I drive past another church in Abilene and see that on the sign, I'm going to lose my mind. I want to stop. Every time I see this on a church sign in Abilene, I want to go in, ask for the pastor and say, can I meet the, those who are in Babylonian captivity? Because you, for some weird reason, you got the scripture on the sign. That is, that, you've got to know who the book is to, right? That is not for us. That is for them. We got to understand that. We, that oh, and now, so that's that's number. That's another reason why it's important. Why else is it important that this was directed to Judah? Why is this important to understand? This one is big. Okay, okay, whenever we deal with prophetic books, right? Whenever we deal with prophetic books, something always happens because people's eschatology gets involved, right? So over and over and over again, when people are studying prophetic books, what do they do? They will see uh, promises or prophecies given, and they will take those promises and prophecies and apply it or say it is fulfilled in whom? The church. They will replace Israel or Judah with the church. Correct? We know this happens. All right? So what we have to do, if this is directed towards Judah, let me ask you, is it directed towards quote-unquote spiritual Judah? Okay, can we all just be on? No way to say that. It's impossible to say that, right? Spiritual Judah wasn't in Babylonian captivity. It's speaking of the actual nation, the actual kingdom of Judah. Now, why is that important in Jeremiah? Does anybody, can anyone find the chapter in Jeremiah where a covenant is promised? A very important chapter. It was very instrumental in a lot of things that changed here in this church for me. Is it 31? Go, go find it. Everybody go to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Okay, where, where at in 31? Could it be 31? All right, 31, 31, right? That's easy to remember, is it not? 31, 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, immediately, some say house of Israel and house of Judah is not them, not the kingdom, not the nation, but the church. Spiritual. That's insane to, to do that here because what you, this is what you would have to do. If, if Judah and Israel are not literal Judah and Israel, then Babylon would not be literal Babylon and every other nation that is involved. So this is what I would challenge anyone to do for those who are participating in the Bible study exercise on this. Here is your first big assignment. I want you to go through the book of Jeremiah and I want you to find out, just make a list of every time Israel and Judah is mentioned by name. And then ask yourself at any point, when did it stop being literal Israel and literal Judah? And if, it, if up to chapter 30, it's always literal Israel and literal, and literal Judah, then how would you understand this? 
literal, right? I mean, you would have to have a textual reason going, no, I believe in like chapter 6, it stops talking about the actual nation and it switches over to some kind of metaphor for the church. Like that, I, I look, I'm just saying, I know I'm going to get all kinds of emails and people are going to disagree. And by all means, disagree. You can go with the spiritual view. But I'm just telling you, hermeneutically, to me, it falls apart. I mean, we just saw in 29, it mentioned Babylon, did it not? Was, was that captivity literal? Yes. Was Babylon literal? Yes. Was the nation of Judah literal in captivity? Then how do all of a sudden you get to chapter 31? It's like, no, 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 no. That's not for them. That's ridiculous, right? Or, no, it's just now for the rent. No, it's for the nation, right? And what does he say? I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with. That clearly is whom? Israel, right? Their fathers, uh, in the day that I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of, I mean, come, how many more clues do you need, right? Which my covenant, they break, although I was a husbandman, husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Seemingly to imply that there's going to come a day that something's going to happen to Israel, and they will be saved. They will be restored. They, something is going to happen, right, to Israel. That's the covenant. Now you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How do we fit in? We're grafted in, it appears, in Romans, Right? We're grafted in. And why are we grafted in? To provoke them to jealousy. And that's what, literally what the text says, right? Well, then, then clearly they're not, he's not done with them. So I know, I know as soon as you start talking this way, then everyone loses their minds, right? Because now, you oh, you're a dispensationalist. You're one of those left behind. You're dumb. You're ignorant. It's like, it's not even about, I hate, I hate the categories, Right? It's not about the category you want to throw me in or the tribe you want to associate with me or associate me with. It's about what? Trying to figure out what's the correct hermeneutic. That's all all it's about. To me, this is not even about eschatology. It's about what? If the book is direct, if the message of the book is directed to the southern kingdom of Judah, then I have to see them as the literal kingdom of Judah. Judah, and if I start creating some kind of spiritual group, then how, how, at what point do I do that with the other nations? Right? I'll, I'll, give, I'll give an example. Again, my old teacher, Harold Camping, he spent, I don't know how many years in the book of Jeremiah. And then what did he determine? Judah is the church. The church is under Babylonian captivity meaning under the control of Satan. So we should leave the local church because the local church is now under the control of Satan. This was prophetic of the church age where the church would now be, and if you stay in the church, you've taken the mark of the beast. Now everybody was like, well, I can't believe he would go there. Well, guess what? He didn't start off that way. He wasn't, he wasn't dispensational. He was all millennial. 
very reformed. Then he's writing a book that the world's going to end in 1994. Then he moves it to 2000-something, ultimately has a stroke. He, he does repent of some of his false prophecies, and then he ultimately passes away. It was really sad to watch the, but it was, I'll never forget, like, what just happened? What is going on? And he wrote a book called The End of the Church Age, and the whole argument is based off, guess what book? Jeremiah. Guess what gave him the right, gave him the ability to get there? Because he started, he had already started it because of his amillennialism, interpreting Judah and Israel as the church. He did not take a literal hermeneutic. All right, so let's go back to the dictionary. I didn't want to spend all of the time there, but I just want you to see how important that is, right? That's very, very important. Everybody understand that? So the book of Jeremiah is a major versus minor prophetic, meaning we got to look for the historical fulfillment, know that it's a genre of literature that requires different ways of interpreting it. Um, it is directed to the southern kingdom of Judah before that nation fell uh, to the Babylonians. The book is named for its author and central personality. The great prophet Jeremiah, who faithfully delivered God's message of judgment in spite of fierce opposition from his countrymen. Please note, he's kind of the central personality in the book. That's why we did the biographical sketch. It's to tr- try to be consistent with the book. They, it, it talks about Jeremiah over and over and over and over and over again. That's how we spent an hour just doing a biographical sketch. And all, where did we look? Simply the book of Jeremiah. Just the book of Jeremiah, all right? Okay, everybody got that? Now, the structure of the book. Jeremiah consists of how many chapters? 52. And it is one of the longest books in the Bible. Everybody got that? Now, here's the next sentence I want everyone to write down in large letters, all right? All caps. It is one of the hardest to follow and understand. It is one of the hardest to follow and to understand. The hardest. Now, I find, I, again, I always have to point this out, and, it, and I don't point this out. I, I point this out in some ways maybe to be a little bit sarcastic and sometimes to make fun of how Christians think, but Christians constantly act like the Bible is easy to be understood. We have some supernatural power in order to figure it out. All the stuff Christians say, but then over and over and over, anytime you look in dictionaries or commentaries, what do they say about almost every book in the Bible? Hard to understand. Hard to understand. This is what, remember when Romans, this chapter is one of the hardest to understand. Then the next chapter would say, this chapter, and then the next chapter would say, this is a, it's just everywhere in the Bible. Why? Why is it so constantly hard to understand? Well, just to make sure we understand, the first reason it's going to be hard to understand is because it's a prophetic book, right? And so we've got to try to interpret prophetic language. And, and then what else, why, why do they say it's one of the hardest to understand and to follow? Most of the other prophetic books have a chronological arrangement, but not the book of Jeremiah. In other words, there's not a chronological arrangement, which can become very confusing and confounding. But uh, not the book of Jeremiah. Prophecies delivered in the final years of his ministry may appear at any point of the book followed by messages that belong to other periods of his life. 
Is that not confusing? Can you see the difficulty? You'd be like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. That prophecy he gave here, but the message is here. Wait, how do I? And guess what? Most cases, people would read it and not do it. And this, and you know what? This is what drives me crazy. Okay, just, I'm going to go on a little rant. What drives me crazy is when you preach something in the book of Jeremiah, right? And you're like, okay, well, we got to do this or we got to do this. And immediately someone wants to start arguing with you. And they'll start arguing. And if you were to even ask them, those basic, give them that basic, they wouldn't even know that basic information about the book of Jeremiah, yet they would be there arguing with you. Do you know how maddening that is to have someone argue with you and they don't even know that information about the book of Jeremiah? Probably because they've never taken a class on it, never written a paper on it, never even outlined the book, but yet they'll be like, you're wrong! And it'll be like, okay, never mind. What, what is even the point? Why am I even trying? I quit. I just retire. Like, that, because, because you would think that you would want to know, like right there, would, right there should tell us all to do what with the book of Jeremiah? Be careful. Maybe we shouldn't be so arrogant thinking we've got it all figured out, right? So for me, now listen, to my, listen to my logic here or listen to my reasoning, right? You may disagree with my reasoning. If we got a book that's not necessarily in chrono- chronological order, where we may get a prophecy that occurs at the end of his life, but it can show up anywhere in the book, and then the message may follow that could be, could be disconnected chronologically. If it's already that confounding and confusing, then to me, the only way that I'm going to have any hope of figuring it out is have a consistent hermeneutic, right? And if I start spiritualizing, then I feel like I'm in trouble, so if I pull back and go, no, 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 no. What I'm going to do is I'm going to hold to a very literal, consistent, then I think I have some hope. That, that's my argument. All right, let, let's see what else they have to say here, right? Um, mingled, okay, so let's read this whole thing again. Most of the other prophetic books have a chronological arrangement, but not the book of Jeremiah. Prophecies delivered in the final years of his ministry may appear at any point in the book, followed by messages that belong to other periods in his life. Mingled with his prophecies of God's approaching judgment are historical accounts of selected events in the life of Judah, personal experiences from Jeremiah's own life, and poetic laments laments about the fate of his country. That sounds like a mess, does it not? That sounds like a complete mess. You, you got pretty much a little bit of what? You got things not in order, things grouped together, and then you not only do you have prophecies, what else do you have? Historical account. Now, let me guess what? I could take the book of Jeremiah, give you all passages. Some of you would come back and interpret the passage as prophetic when all it actually was was historical account and in some cases if the pastor says no that's a historical account the church member will tell the pastor doesn't you don't know what you're talking about so then it doesn't even matter if you go to school because it's a waste of time (laughs) so i'm just telling you 
All right. I know I'm very jaded on it, but I'm just, I've watched this all play out. And so, and then some of the are selected events in the life of Judah, personal experiences from Jeremiah's own life. And then note, please note this last, that next part, poetic laments. Now, why is that going to even add more confusion? Yeah, completely. What happens when it's poetic? Hyperbolic. What else? Not always literal. Wait a minute. Are we trying to use a literal hermeneutic? Oh, see, now we got problems, right? If it's poetic and it's prophetic, then it can become very pathetic, right? All right? Okay? Because now it's going to be very hard, right? Because if it's poetic and it's prophetic, do I understand the, uh, the fulfillment of the prophetic using the poetic language? Or do I simply say the poetic language is prophetic, telling me what's going to happen, but it's not going to be literally fulfilled the way it's being described? Oh, that, that creates all kinds of problems. You see why that can create a problem? Because possibly, listen, it could be a, prof- it could be a poetic prophecy about the return from Babylonian captivity. But because it describes the return of the Babylonian captivity in such a poetic language, we immediately say, it wasn't fulfilled. So then we look for a future. You see all the problems that could cause? That could cause some serious problems. That could cause some serious problems. All right? It is important, here we go, to be aware of this if one wants to understand the message of the great prophetic book. So we got to beware. We got to, like, this is what, when you start reading the book of Jeremiah, the first page should be warning, misinterpretation ahead. Because that's exactly what's going to happen. In fact, the whole Bible should just have that warning. Warning, misinterpretation ahead, because we, are, we struggle with this stuff. We're using, this is like, Different language, different time, different everything, okay? And I know we're not even getting anywhere close to this, but that's okay. Let's, let's see what we can accomplish here, right? Next, all right, now this is what they're going to offer here. Basically, the first half of the book, chapters 1 through 25, contains Jeremiah's prophecy of God's approaching judgment against Judah because of its sin and idolatry. So they're going to try to simplify it. First 25 chapters, now how, again, please note, this is an oversimplification, right? Now, the reason you sometimes offer these oversimplifications and outline is to try to help people grab on to something, right? Well, at least you can go like, I at least have some idea. So the first 25 chapters, according to the Bible dictionary, is about what? It's, it's prophetic of coming judgment on whom? Judah for their sin and idolatry. So don't start looking for, this is not future. This would be pointing to judgments that we believe occurred historically. Right, historically. We, obviously, we'd point to the Babylonian captivity. Egypt comes into play, I think, in the first, tw- maybe it's in the last section. Okay, I, I, have to, I don't remember exactly. So I won't, I won't uh, mention Egypt right now. But the point is, is these are, li- and we believe these judgments are what? Literal. Now, they could be described poetically, but they're still literal judgments. Right, so at least keep that in mind, okay? So far, so good? All right? 
Then the second half, chapters 26 through 52, contains a few of his prophecies, but the main emphasis is on Jeremiah and his conflicts with the kings who ruled in Judah during his ministry. Also included near the end of his book is a report on the fall of Jerusalem and Judah's final days as a nation. Along with a narrative about Jeremiah's flight into Egypt, there's Egypt, comes into play, with other citizens of Judah following the fall. All right, so the first half seems to be maybe the easiest part to understand, right? Prophecies coming against Judah. The second, there's a lot going on there, right? You got some prophecies. You got some basically, what would we call it? We got prophecies. What else would we call that? Historical accounts of Jeremiah and his conflict with the kings. And then his basically going into Egypt. And then the fall of Jerusalem. So, look, I'm not going to say this is perfect. I'm not going to say this is perfect. But they they break this into two parts, right? The first is how many chapters? 25. The second goes from 26 to 52, right? The first half, you can almost, and I'm not saying this is perfect, prophetic coming judgment on Judah. The second part is more historical, relaying the things that happened to Jeremiah, the people involved. Now, obviously, we think there's some prophecies in there, yes, but that's, that's the main emphasis is on the historical. Because we just saw Jeremiah 31, which is clearly prophecy, right? But that's a, an easy way to kind of break it up. All right? There's kind of the structure of the book. Sounds good? All right. If, if you wanted a simple, you could, you could say chapter 1 would be introduction, right? And then prophecies, and then the rest after 26 following would just kind of be, you know, historical accounts. But again, that's not even p- perfect, but all right. They offer kind of a simple outline here. I got a different outline that's far more involved, but we'll, we'll see. We're not going to get to that right now. All right, then they have authorship and date. All right, now, just remember, when it comes to authorship and date, uh, the, uh, the, the author of the book, it's always good to know in this particular case, Jeremiah is featured all throughout the book, so it may be a little easier to establish. The dating of the prophetic books have always been a source of conflict, right? Why has there always been a source of conflict over the prophetic books? Why? Going all the way back to higher criticism coming from Germany to the United States. What happens if you pick a date for the prophetic books that are much later? Then they're not... Well, the, the argument can become they wrote it as if this was predicted, but it wasn't predicted. It was written after, therefore it's not actual prophecy. All right, that's always the argument, right? That's always the argument, okay? Just so that you know. All right, let's see what they say. Um, most conservative scholars agree that the author of the book of Jeremiah was the famous prophet of that name who ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah during the final four decades of that nation's existence. But some scholars claim the book's disjointed arrangement proves it was compiled by an unknown author sometime after Jeremiah's death. 
The book itself gives, a, gives us a clue about how it may have taken its present form. Now, I do agree that the book is a disjointed mess, all right? So I, I am more than willing to hear any scholar going, oh, man, Jeremiah, may I? Because just make sure we understand. Just because you may say it wasn't written by Jeremiah doesn't mean that you are automatically throwing out its prophetic nature, right? What you're simply saying is the book was compiled at a later time, but that still records the actual things that happened during Jeremiah's time and the prophecies were still prophecies. Does that make sense? We're talking about how the book was compiled. Everybody understand that? Because remember, I know we always, we always want to believe that someone just wrote it and it just then fell from heaven, ready to go. But it doesn't always work that way, does it? Okay, so let's see what they have to say here, all right? After prophesying against Judah for about 20 years, the, pro- the prophet Jeremiah was commanded by God to put his message in written form. He dictated this to his scribe or secretary, Barak, who wrote them on a scroll. You can look at chapter 36 just to verify this. Look at chapter 36, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 36, 1 through 4. Okay, chapter 36, verse 1. And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that the word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a roll of a book, and write therein the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all the nations from the days I've spoken unto thee from the days of Josiah even unto this day. So here he's literally commissioned by God to do what? Write it down. All right. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I propose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil ways, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a book. So now you see how it's being it works. Even though Jeremiah is told to write it, Jeremiah, in a sense speaks it, and then who actually writes it? Baruch, all right? And then Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I am shut up, I cannot go into the house of the Lord. Therefore go thou and read in thy roll, which thou hast written from my mouth, the words of the Lord into the ears of the people in the Lord's house upon the fasting day, um, uh, upon the fasting day, and also thou shalt read them in the ears of all Judah and come out of their cities. So, God gives the words to Jeremiah. Jeremiah gives them to Baruch, and Baruch writes them, and then he goes and reads them to the people. All right? So let me go through this passage again. After prophesying against Judah for about 20 years, the prophet Jeremiah was commanded by God to put his message in written form. He dictated this to his scribe or secretary, Baruch, who wrote them on a scroll. Because Jeremiah had been banned from entering the royal court, he sent Baruch to read the message to King Jehoiakim. To show his contempt for Jeremiah and his message, the king cut the scroll apart and threw it in the fire. Look at chapter 36, verses 22 to 23. To verify that, for time's sake, I'll just have you look at it and tell me if you see it or don't see it. 36, 22 to 23. Do 
you agree that it's there, this is your chance. Okay, over there. He throws it into the fire, does he not? All right. Then Jeremiah promptly dictated his book to Baruch again, adding many similar words. Look at 36.32. Does that happen in 36.32? All right. Now, the fact that he added many similar words, many believe that, that he had added things had not been included the first time. So the first time he included lots of words, the second time he included even more words. All right. The clear description of how a second version of Jeremiah came to be written shows the book was composed in two or more different stages during the prophet's ministry. The scribe Baruch was probably the one who added to the book at Jeremiah's command as it was shaped and refined over a period of several years. This is a possible explanation for the disjointed arrangement of the book. Baruch must have put the book in its final form shortly after Jeremiah's death, presumably in Egypt. So in other words, there was a version, then that he repeats those words, but adds words. And then somewhere later when it was all said and done, Baruch took all of the words and then compiled it. And somehow in the compiling of it, it is what? A disjointed mess. All right, now I know I'm not supposed to say that, okay, but, well, yeah, it, it, it causes problems. Now, you can read the book yourself and see how you, you feel about it. It says, we can learn a, a great deal about the prophet Jeremiah by reading his book. And, uh, and we, we looked at a lot of his, uh, his life in the last hour. So I'm not going to go and read that entire paragraph. We'll skip that because it's going to talk a lot about him, and we just spent an hour doing that. Okay. Then at the bottom of the page, with the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC, most of the leading citizens of the nation were carried away as captives to Babylon. But Jeremiah was allowed to remain in Judah with the other citizens who were placed under the authority of ruling governor appointed by Babylon. When the, site, when the citizens of Jerusalem revolted against this official, Jeremiah and others were forced to seek safety in Egypt where he continued his prophetic ministry. This is the last we hear of this courageous prophet of the Lord. Now, just note, there are some traditions, and I mentioned this in the first hour, that he goes with the remnant into Egypt, and then the remnant turns on him and kills him. And he dies in Egypt. So even the people he tried to minister to ultimately kills him. So, all right, the historical setting. The book of Jeremiah belongs to a chaotic time in the history of God's covenant people. Jeremiah's native land, the southern kingdom of Judah, was caught in a power squeeze between three great powers, Egypt, Assyria, and Babylonia, right, or Babylon. As these empires struggled for dominance with one another, the noose grew tighter around Judah's neck. To protect its borders, Judah entered into an alliance with Egypt against the Babylonians, but Jeremiah realized the alliance was too little and too late. For years, his beloved nation had risked disaster as it rejected worship of the one true God, turned to pagan gods instead. Immorality, injustice, graft, and corruption prevailed throughout the land. God revealed to the prophet that he intended to punish his covenant people by sending the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem and carry the people into captivity. Jeremiah preached the message of judgment faithfully for about 40 years. 
At the beginning of his ministry, it's, it appeared briefly that conditions might improve. King Josiah ruled from 641 or 640 to 609 B.C., began reforms based on God's law, but his death, uh, but at his death, the dark days of paganism returned. Josiah's successors continued their reckless pursuit of idolatry and foolish alliances with Egypt against the Babylonians. So just make sure we remember something here. Very important practical lesson is whoever you bring into power politically, right? They can make all the laws that you can come up with, right? And they can try to push back. They can try to stop certain practices and certain activities. But if you don't change the heart of the people, what will always come back? The heart of the people. So you can, you can say, we're going to fight this politically. We're going to pass laws. And you may get a temporary victory. You may be like, look at us. We've accomplished it. Until what? What is really is inside the people is going to come out. Right? You can pass a law against alcohol called prohibition. Okay, right. He just just brought it under. In other words, it's always going to come back out. It's always going to come back out. That's why the Christian Christian perspective is not so much on trying to pass the laws because now you're trying to impose biblical morality on unregenerate people. That's why the church is never called to do that. What's the church called to do? Preach the gospel, baptize, and then when do you teach them to obey? After, right? I mean, that's the Great Commission, right? Teach, baptize, teach to obey. The teaching to obey happens after the baptism, not before the baptism, right? Okay? Because what's, you can try to scream and yell at unregenerate people, you will live the way we want you to live. And one, all you're going to do is create persecution on yourself, not because of Jesus, but because you're trying to impose rules upon them. And they're like, I don't want your Jesus. I don't want your Bible. I don't want your God. Leave me alone. Right? Just like we would be upset if Islam tried to pass laws on us. Our job is to preach because, look, every time, did that not happen constantly in Israel's history? A king would come along and you'd be like, look at that. They're doing good. And as soon as the king dies, because the king was doing so by force. <laughs> Isn't it amazing what people will do when forced? Okay, Hey, you will go to church or we'll kill you. Well, what are you going to have a possibility is going to happen? A lot of people go to church, right? Okay. right? You, you get the idea? Okay, so it just, it happened over and over and over. So, all right, but immediately, then it comes back, and now they, they, they come in, all right? Um, and then so they, uh, Josiah's successors continued their reckless pursuit of idolatry, foolish, foolish alliance with Egypt against the Babylonians. And then at the decisive battle of Carchemish uh, in 605 B.C., the Egyptians were soundly defeated. About 18 years later, the Babylonians completed their conquest of Judah by destroying the capital city of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem, just as Jeremiah had predicted, the leading citizens of Judah were carried to Babylon, Babylon, Babylonia, where they remained captive for half a century. All right? So that's all of that is the, the context. All right? Now, theological consideration. Um, Jeremiah's greatest theological contribution was his concept of the new covenant. A new covenant between God 
and his people, police note, they're, they're being very uh, vague there, are they not? Okay, all right. His people was necessary because the people had broken the old covenant. The, uh, the captivity of God's people by a foreign power was proof of that. Although the old covenant had been renewed again and again throughout Israel's history, the people still continued to break the promises that made to God. Uh, what was needed was a new type of covenant between God and his people, a covenant of grace and forgiveness written on the human heart rather than the covenant of law and engraved in stone. As Jeremiah reported God's plan for this new covenant, he anticipated the draw, dawning of the era of grace and the person of Jesus Christ more than 500 years in the future. No one shall ever, uh, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, and I will remember no more. That's 3134. Now, immediately I would stop and go. I don't believe that's referencing us. Why do I not believe that's referencing us? Well, first it says they're not going to have any need for anyone to teach them. I don't know about you, but I think you guys still need some teaching. I think this is a reference to some future fulfillment for Israel, and they won't need anyone to teach them because, well, well, if we, depending on how we go for a fulfillment, Christ may actually be present. And so, you're, you're, yeah, I think things are going to be really different, right? So, uh, so important is Jeremiah uh, 31, 31 through 34 in biblical theology that it's the longest continuous Old Testament passage to be quoted in full in the New Testament, right? Now, special consideration, we'll end with this. Jeremiah was a master at using figures of speech, metaphors, and symbolic behavior to drive home his message. Oh, no, no. No. All right. So here's what, for those who are participating in the Bible study exercise, your first two assignments are very simple. One, go through all the book of Jeremiah and do what? How many times Judah and Israel is mentioned? And ask yourself, is that referring to an actual nation or is it symbolic, figurative, metaphorical, allegorical? All right. Second, I do want you to go through the book of Jeremiah, just skimming it, and make a list of all the figurative, symbolic, allegorical language that is being utilized, all right? And just make a list of all the verses, okay? Because it says that Jeremiah was a meta, uh, master at using figures of speech, metaphors, and symbolic behavior to drive home his message. They're going to give us some examples. Quickly, go to Jeremiah chapter 1. Quick, quick, quickly, quickly, quickly. Let's see if we can get this done here. Jeremiah chapter 1. Look at, it, look at immediately what happens in verse 11. This is right here in chapter 1. Look what happens immediately in chapter 1. Everybody ready? Verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then, then said the Lord to me, thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. And the word of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying, what seest thou? And I said, I see a seething pot, and the face thereof is towards the north. Then the Lord said unto me, Out of the north an evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. So immediate now, now what's interesting is the seething pot is kind of explained is the 
Almond tree, really? A rod of an almond tree explained? Well, yeah, I, I know. So, like, I'm just saying immediately we got something to try to figure out, right? So, that, I just want you to see that the, the language, the figurative language, the symbolic language shows up almost instantaneously. Now, the key is when you're going through trying to find all of the symbolic language, I think in most cases you're going to be given a pretty good clue. That it's what? That it's a symbolic. I, think, I mean, I think right there you get a pretty good clue, do you not? All right. Uh, um, but they go on to say, uh, for example, uh, Jeremiah carried a yoke around his neck to show the citizens of Judah they should submit to the inevitable rule of the pagan Babylonians. Man, you could imagine that would have been unpopular. The Babylonians are coming and you should submit to them. <laughs> that... That would not go well. Okay, just try that in the American church. It doesn't go well. He watched a potter's a potter mar a piece of clay, then reshape it into a perfect vessel. He applied this lesson to the nation of Judah, which we always rip out of context and apply it to whom? Us, right? Uh, which needed to submit to the divine will of the master potter while there was still time to repent and avoid God's judgment. But perhaps the most unusual symbolic act was the purchase of a plot of land in his hometown Anathoth about three miles northeast of Jerusalem. Jeremiah knew that this land would be practically worthless after the Babylonians overran Jerusalem as he as he was predicting but by buying the plot he symbolized his hope for the future. Even in Judah's darkest hour Jeremiah prophesied that a remnant would return from Babylonian after their captivity to restore their way of life and to worship God again in the temple. Please note they have that listed in 32, 26 to 44, which is where we could get into lots of difficulties, right? Because is that a prophecy about coming out of Babylonian captivity or does it go beyond that? God directed Jeremiah to put the deed to the land and clay vessel so it would be preserved for the future. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. 32, 15. And there we have the overview of the book, right? So what can we take away from the overview of the book? It is a book that presents great complications. Those complications are based off what? No chronological order. Seems disjointed. Contains poetry and prophecy, right? Making it very difficult to try to understand. Uh, And... Because, and, 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 and all of that creates a problem, and because it deals with such theological matters, say the New Covenant, then what's very dangerous is for you to take a system and impose the system on the text instead of letting the text create the system. Remember, that it's, it's, it's very difficult sometimes to know when, when we're doing that, right? We all want to believe it's the text giving us the system. But over and over and over, it's the system that we are imposing on the text. It's hard to not let yourself do that. It's very hard, but we have to try to... All you can do is when you go to the text is do what? Forget the system. Just ignore the system. Just don't, and just don't worry about it and just try to go through it and go, okay, okay. And then sometimes guess what you'll discover? Is all of a sudden your system does what? collapse right right because i was going to look at it like you know jeremiah 31 i was going to look at it from a 
covenantal the- theological position. And then all of a sudden in the middle of the sermon, I realized, wait, I don't think this is going to work. And then the minute I realized it wasn't going to work, then we had to start trying to figure out what. So I had a system in mind. So, but, but I, at least I was able to realize, wait a minute, this is not going to work with the system. But the best thing to do is not bring the system to it. I was bringing the system to it. I was able to catch it first. But the best thing to do is just say, no, I'm not going to approach this from that system today. So like when we go to Jeremiah, we're not, who cares? We're not going to worry about dispensational, amillennial. We're not going to worry about covenantal. We're not going to worry, what we're going to worry about is what the words say. And then guess what? If they challenge a system that we have, then guess what we will do? Change the system. Because this, what, what is the authority? The word of God, not the system. And it's hard for people to realize that. It's hard for people to, they, they will tell you, no, I'm going with the scriptures. And like, but you're, you're finding individual scriptures and throwing them at me because you believe those scriptures say that because your system tells you they say it. And it's hard for them to go, you, you try to tell people, stop arguing with me and go actually study it. Because then maybe we can be closer but you can't get anywhere because all, if all you're going to do is argue your system, then I'll just throw my system back at your system. And then guess what? Never is really being dealt with. And that drives me, that just drives me mad when that happens, right? It's like we got to stop worrying about the We got to get to the text. But we just have to be, we have to realize Jeremiah is a, is a mess, it's a mess to figure out. It's a mess. There's no easy ways to try to figure it out. So um, there it is. There's the book of Jeremiah. There's much more I could say. So we just have to approach it with caution. And for those who participate in the Bible study exercise, go through Jeremiah, find every mention of Judah and Israel. Just write down the reference, and you can write down next to it, literal, figurative, spiritual, whatever. You can just, literal, like, is that literal Israel and Judah, or is it figurative? Right? And it, it will only take you a couple of seconds for each verse for those listening online. And then go through and just find all the figurative language. Just skim. I mean, when you see an almond tree, I think, you know, I think that something's a seething pot. Okay, come on. That's, that's not a, that, that's representing something, right? And just, and the more, because I just want you to see how much of the figurative language, which is going to make it hard, right? Because they're like, wait a minute. I'm using this literal hermeneutic, but, I, but even within a literal hermeneutic, we have to take into account poetic, figurative language. Yes? And then we've got to make sure, okay, when does, when does that stop? Oh, now, now, do we get back to the literal now? Or do we keep going? Like, that's where it can get complicated. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Thank you for the ability to have the tools and resources to do an overview of a book. And I pray that this overview will give us a desire to read it and to understand it and to try to know exactly what Jeremiah was saying to the people of that time and then how that may apply to us in our time. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...